0: Podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: This episode of Redinger, we talk about the incredible English summer of 2019, when Steve Smith and Ben Stokes erased all previous faux pas by being really good at cricket. So I got in someone who happened to have just written a book called The Comeback Summer about that summer to talk about it. I'm Jeff Lemon and in this context I wrote a cricket book. We look at what fans and media think and how these stories and narratives are constructed. Should Warner have scored more runs in the ashes for extra love? Would Cameron Bancroft be better at redemption if he was better at cricket? Has being really good at the sport he was always really good at shown us something about the moral character of Ben Stokes? And is Steve Smith an amorphous dumpling? All right, Lemon, I'm going to start with a story from, must have been late 2018 when I was talking to a mate, and he was basically saying, David Warner will never be forgiven. This is it for David Warner. Mm -hmm. Not coming back. And I was like, How could you live through Michael Clarke being booed at the SCG when he was captaining Australia, to Michael Mm. Clarke being flated by a crowd at the SCG a couple of years later because he didn't, and he stopped for press conferences during a triple century, and think that anything is ever over? Of course, the next time David Warner does something special for Australia, Australians are going to be like, that's the Davy, he's back. Yeah. That seems to me very much like what you noticed going on in the old Ashes and World Cup with Ben Stokes. And, and you've written a book about it, Jeff. It's called The Comeback Summer.
0: It is called The Comeback <laughs> Summer because it's about a summer in which there were comebacks and, <laughs> and in some ways not so good comebacks. But, I mean, David Warner's part of that story as well. And you're right to a degree in that he was always going to be forgiven as long as he did good things, you know, on a sporting (laughs) field. But I still, I kind of think he hasn't been forgiven partly because he didn't do good things on a cricket field. Like basically because he was shit in the ashes, Mm. there will be people who will retain their anger towards him forever, which they might not otherwise have done if he'd made a shitload of runs during the ashes. That's basically the, the difference. So he did make a lot of runs in the World Cup, but Australia didn't win the World Cup. Therefore, that didn't count. That immediately got forgotten. And then he didn't make runs in the ashes. And that's really, people will hold that against him as a moral failing for the rest of his life, that when he was supposed to come back and make us like him again, he didn't do it because he didn't get enough runs.
1: He made his runs too late for love, is what you're saying, mm. essentially. And, and, also, too <laughs> yeah, and too early. Yeah, too early. I mean, this whole thing is so mental. And yet you and I are both sports fans. So we've both probably been part of it and lived it. And then in the media, we're also part of it again. But, Mm. I mean, just so that everyone in the cheap seats can hear, I think we're both on the same side here, that being good at sport does not necessarily make you a good human being. And that doing bad things that are
0: not related to sport that's not solved by then continuing to be good at sport, (laughs) you know. You're like I was really good at football until I punched this man in the head a lot and then I continued being good at football, therefore I've now been absolved of my sins. But that does seem to be the way that it works as far as the public eye goes. And that was always going to happen, I think, with Warner and Smith on the Australian side and and with Ben Stokes on the English side. And I don't know if you remember this happening, but there's um, there's a Triple J presenter called Declan Byrne who – put up this image, I think it was when Steve Smith got suspended, so it was March 29th or whatever it was in 2018, and he got a picture of Smith celebrating 100 and made a fake front page for the newspaper and said this will be the front page in eighteen months' time when Smith scores a hundred in the first test at Edgebaston, and the big banner headline just said "Redemption," <laughs> you know, and that is literally exactly what happens. Like, they just ran that front page when it happened a year and a half later, which was it was comical, but it was entirely predictable. We knew that's how the the cycle of the narrative would go.
1: Yeah, and at a certain point the way the media works and the way that fans work is the last thing that has happened is usually the most important. I remember when Tiger mm. Woods came back and won whatever, one of those tournaments that golf yeah, people the golf got. one. Yeah. Yeah, one of the golf guys tournaments. Mm. They give them a jacket. Yeah. It was a jacket. It's, like, it's like the champion's trophy, but for golf. Yeah, yeah. I actually think the golf copied the champion's trophy, if I remember correctly. <laughs> I they did, yeah. That's where they got the jacket idea. And so it was after the whole infidelity stuff and, whatever else Tiger Woods did that people didn't mm. like, I wasn't really following it that much. I only read Wright-Thompson articles about him, if I'm being honest. He was mean to a Norwegian person and he crashed a car. Yeah. That's all I know. And at one stage he tried to become an army member or something. So, did he? Okay. Wright-Thompson's piece is quite good on it. It's very mm. interesting. Anyway, so that happened. And I remember, unfortunately, there's a big overlap between cricket Twitter and golf Twitter. Yeah. And unless you actually mute every golfing term, it's going to come up. I <laughs> No, I really have. It, it
0: helps a lot because there's that bizarre thing of cricketers who were like, oh, I was really burned out from playing too much cricket, so I needed to take some time off, so I went and played golf. And I'm like, it's just a different stick and ball game. You're hitting a slightly different ball with a slightly different stick.
1: Like, that could just be a training method. That's not helping. How it's just that- a Scottish version of cricket, you idiots. <laughs> but, yeah, I remember when he did it and everyone went absolutely nuts at this comeback, mm. and and I was just like, oh. It never stops. It just Mm. keeps happening and people look for it. And its I think, to be fair, it is built into the sort of human condition as well. Like A lot of what we are saying and what we will be saying in this podcast is just our own frustrations at how humans work. But Mm. there's that whole thing of, oh, look, he had to rise up. And then there's the fall from grace. And then he's got to suffer. And then there's the rise from the fall. And it's just like we've seen it so many times in sport that as brilliant as Declan's headline was, no one was surprised when this happened. Mm. Yeah, they weren't and they wouldn't have been and
0: and they couldn't have been. But (laughs) I guess I, I started because I wanted to write this book and I wanted to write it about that 2019 summer when the World Cup and the Ashes happened and it was completely bonkers for several months because ridiculous things just kept happening. You know, you'd keep seeing something where you'd think, okay, that's about as ridiculous as cricket can get and then it wouldn't be because something even more ridiculous would happen the next week or or the same level would keep happening. But even before that season had started, I was on the lookout for that redemption narrative because mm. I knew it was going to be coming whatever happened. And so I think I started from that position of frustration with it that, that you're talking about, that that it's things that are predictable are annoying because you've already expected that they're going to happen, so they're not interesting. But I tried to put the annoyance aside a bit when I was writing and just look at, okay, what is this? like? What is the impulse? Why do we have it? What purpose does it serve? Because these kind of reflex human reactions that we have usually do something. They're usually in aid of something, even if it's not necessarily helpful. So that was kind of the question is is how can it be useful to us as people to have this kind of obsession with somebody being forgiven? And I think it ties in a lot with the way that we perceive stories because for a story to work, it has to have something at stake. It has to have mm. the potential for loss, the potential for things to go wrong, and then the swerve where things don't go wrong or where things recover from going wrong. So that narrative drive, you know, every movie you ever watch will be about Mm. here is a thing that could be attained and then, you know, every rom-com is like here is a relationship that could happen and then it's lost and it can't happen. Oh, Mm. and that's sad. But then it does happen. (laughs) Very simple sort of narrative structure, but it's very satisfying. We still Mm. like it. We still will watch literally hundreds of these things in our lifetimes that all just follow the same pattern because there's
1: something inherently pleasing about that pattern. And I think also just on a very basic level, let's say Steve Smith's breakthrough is when he was, what, 25, whenever it is. Hmm. We know he's going to be good at cricket roughly for eight years. It might Mm -hmm. be six years because of injuries or, you know, it might be 10 or 12 years because he's one of those guys who plays on longer. There's a certain point where okay, Mm. C. Smith's going to be roughly at this level for a very long time. And Ben Stokes as well is going to be roughly at this level for a very long time. You take the year out, it actually makes it a little bit more interesting. Or in in Stokes' case, you know, will he come back? Will he even go to jail? The whole thing is suddenly a lot more interesting. And I think that goes back to that thing. and, And, you know, movie structure just comes from ancient storytelling, art, doesn't it? We've always done this. So it makes sense. And so C. Smith is not a very fascinating human being. He's the opposite of that, I would say. (laughs) The most fascinating thing that ever happened was this one moment in his life. Yet There's that great photo of him that the Australian tabloids found of like, was it just him in a bar having a beer Mm. on his own and a burger in New York? And it's like, that's Steve Smith. I've had, had many big conversations with him, but I've certainly been around conversations with him, if you know what I mean, in group situations. He's not adding a lot to the conversations. There's not a lot of Steve Smith. Suddenly this was huge, and I think it makes sense that we sort of swell up for that moment.
0: Yeah, because it's a really interesting thing that he's done, aside from the other thing of being really good at cricket, which we'd kind of established by that point. (laughs) There had been a lot of profiles being like, Steve Smith, good at cricket. Uh, Do you know what else about Steve Smith? Really likes cricket, really interested (laughs) in it. You know, big fan, likes playing it, likes talking about it, likes practising it. And that was about all that could be written because there wasn't a lot else to tell. And so I suppose that is true, that you throw some texture into that mix and suddenly you're like, oh, here's this more interesting part of this character because they've had a failing, they've had a human shortcoming, they've done something wrong and before that happens, he's a smooth blob. He's like mm. an amorphous dumpling or something. And now once the thing does happen, he becomes... Faceted, he's got different faces that you can show to the light that can bounce off at different angles, and suddenly, like, oh, there's texture here. This is every iteration of a video game that gets better, you know, as the generations get better and better on these platforms. They're all about adding more texture, right? Mm. The more texture you put in, the more variation, the more detail, the more interest. And so, you know, looking at Red Dead Redemption is much better than looking at Pong, but it's all about (laughs) texture rather than necessarily, you know, gameplay, but it's complexity. So you, you add complexity to something that seems simple. That's very satisfying.
1: And the other thing is the story that we're talking about. I remember years ago watching it was Olympics or Commonwealth Games and Channel 7 was showing it in Australia. It was a marathon and at the front were two Kenyans and an Australian. And the two Kenyans looked like they were going for a lovely walk. And this yeah. whole Australian was just sweating and every vein in his forehead was about to burst that he probably already shit himself three times on, on the track. And the commentator said, these Kenyans, they obviously look really good. But this Australian, he's got one thing they don't have, an Australian heart. And I just thought, (laughs) Kenyans don't have Kenyan hearts. A Kenyan heart's not the same as Australian hearts. But then I thought, he's just trying to sell this back to the people at home or watching the bloke with the blood vessel. About And it's all about those little things, isn't it? And and, you know, your last podcast, we talked about Channel 9. Channel 9 was all about, that was the story, wasn't it? And in this case, again, it just becomes all about the Steve Smith story and I think because he went from what did you call him an amorphous dumpling? <laughs> Is that what you called him earlier? Yeah, I'm not uh, sure, something like that. Yeah, if you didn't, that's what I heard, and I enjoyed. He was untainted. It's like the, you know the young politicians where they come through and they get mm-hmm. to about twenty eight, twenty nine, they or 38, 39, they get to like a important position, and then suddenly yeah. something happens, and that's what they're defined by. We hunt that down, don't we? I mean, it's a bit like somebody putting on a fake scar in order to look more
0: interesting. (laughs) They're like, this is going to make me look hot because I'm going to have a mysterious story. So that's Steve Smith's mysterious story, but, you know, it it just happened to happen in front of everybody. Um, I was just thinking about the Kenyan heart. So obviously (laughs) a Kenyan heart is much better at running because, you know, it's got a lower BPM and it's delivering more highly oxygenated blood to the Kenyan who owns it. And so that's a far better thing to have if you want to be good at distance running, surely.
1: I would have thought so. I would have thought from a scientific point of view, we had proved almost beyond a reasonable doubt that Kenyan hearts are perfectly suited to the end of marathons. Which heart is better, (laughs) the
0: one in the guy who looks like he's about to die or the one in the guy who is going to win and
1: does not look like he's in complete agony? But but you see why I bring that story up because that's kind of how we do things. You know, that's a nationalist nonsense in that case, but it's that kind of thing the story and all the way through like you and i both you know on twitter and, and even meeting cricket fans out uh, whatever that fan sort of pre-existing thought on whether it be warner or stokes or bancroft or smith was that was amplified by this story so if you thought they were great to begin with you found a way of forgiving them really early on or if they were yeah. on your team or whatever it was if you always thought Warner was a prick, or then Warner was a prick. If you always thought Stokes was violent, then Stokes was violent. I found that really interesting, the way that people just, that was it. That was what those people were from then on. So the people who hated Smith, do you remember the um, DRS in mm. India? You know, the brain yeah, fade yeah. moment? The Indian fans who hated Smith for that just completely went him uh, for Sandpaper mm. Gate in a way that other casual fans around the world just were like, I have no strong opinion on this one way or another. But the role definition became really interesting to me. Yeah, it
0: becomes purely an exercise in confirmation bias uh, a lot of the time. We already knew he was a cheat because he was this other time that, mm. that we thought he cheated, and so that just locks it in. What I thought was interesting was also the difference between the Smith-Warner story and the Stokes story in that Smith and Warner cheat in a cricket game, mm. which is, you know, it's bad, you're not supposed to do it, but it's also not really potentially lethal, you know, it, it's frowned upon. But it's not a crime, and you know Ben Stokes beat the shit out of a couple of guys and didn't get convicted in court of having committed a crime. But that doesn't mean that he didn't beat the shit out of a couple of yeah. guys. he did He had a defense which worked in court that said that they couldn't be sure that there was enough evidence that it was a worthy of a criminal conviction. He
1: wasn't done for assault
0: for, because the other yes. guys were fighting back and all those sorts of things. Well, the prosecution service tried to add an assault charge Mm. once the trial had already started, which meant that it was guaranteed to be thrown out. So, it was a kind of performative action. So, basically, the Crown Prosecution Service stuffed it up and they initially charged all three of the people involved with the same thing, even though the video was one of them punching the other two a lot and the other two not (laughs) punching the one. So if you can look at that and say that all three of those people should be charged with the same offence, that's a fairly interesting interpretation. And then they tried to add the assault charges at such a late date that there was no chance of the judge allowing them to be added because you can't just say to a defence, oh, by the way, we've got a couple of much more serious charges (laughs) that you haven't prepared to defend and we'd like to pop those in. So that was always going to be thrown out. It was a kind of performative thing. So you've got someone who has done something which is you know potentially could kill someone, like punching them in the head a lot and knocking them out in the street. And then you've got someone who's cheating at a sport. But because the one involving a potential criminal charge involved a potential criminal charge, he couldn't admit to having done it. He had to say, oh, I was completely innocent and Mm. I was just wandering along minding my own business and I happened to rush to the defence of a couple of passers-by who were being abused and so on. Whereas the other two who were cheating in the game admitted what they'd done Mm. within a couple of days which meant that there was no grey area about whether they'd done it. They said they'd done it. And so they got completely smashed immediately. They got the full whack of having committed this offence, whereas in the other case where you couldn't conclusively say that someone had committed an offence for legal reasons, it sat in this grey area for months and months, for almost a year until the trial happened before anybody could talk about it with any certainty. And by that point, people were sick of talking about it. And so (laughs) then you're at a stage where it's like, okay, well, here's this really complicated, difficult, awkward thing about this character who, to be honest, we'd just like to see him play cricket and enjoy it. And so the easiest way for us to do that is to decide that he's been absolved by being good at cricket, mm. and then it, everything's fine. You're like, oh, look, he won the World Cup, therefore everything's good now. So it, it serves a human purpose in making a really complicated mental situation resolve itself, and then it's like, ah, okay, that bout of indigestion has passed, and mm. now we can move on.
1: And just on a basic level, when you talk about complications as well, like you and I both had relationships with David Warner over the years. The other guys I think I've met pretty much... all. Oh, I've met all four of the guys here, but I wouldn't say I know them as well as I know Warner. Warner is the one that sort of is seen as the most villainous from afar. And Hmm. to be fair, he plays that up, I think, as much as possible as well. But he's a normal human who is complicated. I'm asked about him more than almost anyone else. Is he a dick? Was he a dick to you? And all this sort of stuff. And it's like, well, he was a normal human being. He had a bevy of different emotions on different days, (laughs) depending on his mood and, you know, what someone had done to him and he has to live a different life to me. That's not how these things are done because once you get into that sort of story, especially once it becomes a Hollywood style story. Everyone has to fit into that different zone. So, you know, Bancroft just became the ingenue who got screwed over and Steve Smith was the man who who trusted too much and Ben <laughs> Stokes was protecting gay relationships outside mm-hmm. of Nike. But all those sorts of th- – it's really interesting how you just do that, whereas realistically there's an absolute metric shitload of different complications on all these different guys. And, that yeah, there's always nuance in those stories and there's not
0: a lot of – use in trying to come up with those brief character sketches. Like you're saying, you know, Bancroft gets presented as this sweet, innocent kid, but, like, he's 25 – if you're 25 in some contexts, you're very old, uh, like if you're still at high school, for instance. But but if you're 25 in other contexts, you're extremely young and naive. And, you know, I think we all, all of us, I mean, both of us on this call, we both have probably been and have known a lot of 25 year old men who are very immature and stupid and who are basically large children who can drive. But in a a lot of other ways, you know, you're a grown up at that point and what you do, you you have to carry some responsibility for. So it just depends which way you want to dress it up. You know, I guess it's this strange way that we view athletes where a 25 year old footballer or cricketer is at the peak of their powers. They're at peak maturity, but actually haven't got much life experience. Mm. They don't know a lot about the world. Probably they're probably fairly naive and they probably shouldn't have to be in positions of being statesmen and the same as, as being a test captain where you're supposed to be able to give a stirring speech off the cuff at the Abu Dhabi High Commission and go and navigate a press conference with dozens of media personnel and say the right things at the right times and not visibly swear on television and all this stuff. But, you know, you're 28. And it's like, well, what was I doing at 28? Probably Jager bombs. Like, I don't know. How are you supposed to fulfil that role as someone who's got no breadth outside of having played cricket since you were 13.
1: No, no, I agree. On Bancroft, I mean, I know your book is quite a lot on Smith and Stokes because obviously they're the ones who had the big series, but I'm just mm. kind of interested a little bit on the guys who had the poor one. We talked about Warner a little bit at the top, but is Bancroft less redeemed because he's not as good as cricket at the other guys? Because he was a fringe player anyway. Yeah, and, and
0: he's a key part of the story, and, and I do Spend a bit of time, you know, not as much, but an important bit of time, I think, on Bancroft in that story because he, at the point that he gets suspended from the test team, at that exact moment in time, he's their best player on that South Africa tour. He's the only batsman who's really consistently done something through the tour. Mitch Marsh has a good test at the start and then drops off dramatically. Warner plays badly, Smith plays badly, they're both exhausted, they're not playing well. And in their absence, Bancroft's actually, he's the highest scorer on the tour and he only plays three tests out of four. So I think he's actually showing quite a bit there that says that he is a player who could be a valuable contributor and then he cops this hit and and gets suspended and has that humiliation and all the rest of it. And then when he's brought back into the test team, my reading on it, which I know was not viewed kindly by some of the members of the, you know, sanctum of the Australian team, but He was brought back in, I think, in at least some significant part because he had to be brought back in in order to make the forgiveness of Warner and Smith possible. If Bancroft didn't play, if he didn't come in in that series where, you know, he had some claim to be picked but not a particularly strong claim compared to the other three opening batting candidates. Yeah. He'd done a little
1: bit for Durham, hadn't he?
0: Yeah, he made a couple of hundreds for Durham and he made some runs in the sort of the intra-squad sort of warm-up game. But he's up against Harris, Joe Burns and Warner and there are two opening spots in the 11 and maybe one spare spot in the team and he's got a weaker case than all three of those players but he still not only makes the squad but makes the 11. And whether it was conscious or not, I think a strong part of that is that He was just good enough at the time in terms of his recent record to get picked, but if they didn't take that opportunity to pick him then and he subsequently didn't give them a strong enough case to pick him in the home summer or the next year or the year after that, if you're looking up his Crick Info page and it says, last test, Cape Town 2018, (laughs) that's an albatross around the neck of Smith and Warner from then on because it's like these guys, the senior players, the captain and the vice captain, fucked this guy's career they ended his career and they went on to have post-suspension careers and he didn't. Mm. And Australian cricket couldn't afford for that to happen, so they had to get him back in the team so that even if he wasn't good enough, and they dropped him after two tests, which was too soon, I, you know, he probably shouldn't have been in the 11, but he also shouldn't have been dropped as soon as he was. But they made it his fault. They said, okay, he's now been dropped because he hasn't made enough runs, therefore the end of his career is now his fault. Everyone else's hands are yeah. clean. And it's all on him from this point on.
1: Yeah. No, I mean, it's very interesting. Obviously, we don't know, especially if it is unconscious. But it, I always thought it was odd that he came back. I thought he was a fringe player before who would have probably been a middling player. And I think we'd seen enough of him to know that he was probably of that level in the first time he was around. The fact that he came back in the situation he is, especially now with, I find it hilarious that like Joe Burns is now back Mm. and one of the reasons is because he has this great relationship with david warner but somehow bancroft managed to circumnavigate that slightly there was a feeling that
0: we owe it to him i think Mm. that you know you have to give him a shot because he got wounded you know he got damaged it was a kind of payout but they didn't pay him out enough they needed to at least give him a third test match and you know marcus harris was a worse opening batsman than bancroft was in english conditions
1: And the other thing is that I think there was certainly a feeling amongst some people from Cricket Australia that I've talked to over the time is they just knew that the suspension was an overreaction, that it came in that Mm. moment. I mean, it's nonsense anyway. Australians have cheated on the field since the first time I watched cricket, and I'm going to go out Mm. on a limb and say perhaps before then. And these suspensions were absolutely nothing in line with what the ICC did, and I understand that they weren't for tampering. It was for lying about tampering, which I don't know. Brad Haddon and Justin Langer both still have their jobs after being caught cheating on the field. So it was an overreaction. So I wonder how much of it was he probably got caught up in this a little bit just as a general rule and maybe he should have had a month suspension, whereas perhaps the other guys who were more involved with the leadership were the ones who should have got the longest suspension.
0: Yeah, it was a cutout pass, I think, that they had to give him something uh, because, as you say, he shouldn't have been carrying the responsibility but he was the face of it so that he had to have something substantial enough because it's it's his picture you know every time they show that replay he's the one whose face it is it's not the captain it's not the vice captain and he's also the one and part of the reason that I haven't agreed with that view that the suspensions were too harsh is that sitting in that press conference and having those two having Smith and Bancroft just flat out lie to our faces that really pissed me off, to be honest, just on a personal perspective, because you're used to media spin and you're used to players avoiding the questions they don't necessarily want to answer and giving the diplomatic answers and so on. But to just flat out make shit up for the sole purposes of trying to mitigate the blowback and protect a player who, who they were lying to cover up for, is it leaves a gross taste in your mouth that they thought that was fine. They thought- This is an acceptable thing to do because it's not just that they're lying to the people in the room. They're lying to everybody who they represent. You know, you're wearing the cap with the national crest on it. You represent the country. You're playing for those people. You're paid by the tax exemptions that your organising body gets from the public of your country as a tax-free organisation. And then you're like, oh, no, they
1: don't need to know what actually happened
0: while we were representing the team, we're allowed to lie I get all it.
1: that. All I would say is that Justin Langer said that he didn't know that he took the bail off before they appealed for that hit wicket and that Brad mm. Haddon said he didn't feel his gloves slam into the stumps and take the bails off when Neil Broom was bowled and mm. they weren't suspended at all. There was no follow-up and yeah. I just think that finally we had someone who was found guilty and we went all in, whereas there had been a series of micro moments going up to that. We had somebody who couldn't be found not guilty, you
0: know. We had someone who had no way out, whereas everybody up until that point, we've been able to spin it so that they squirm out of it to say, Mm. oh, well, we can't be completely sure. We've never had anyone banged to rights before, and I think that was a huge part of it. Ball tampering's gone on for 150 years, you know, at least. You you know this and I know this and every player knows this, but no one's ever been completely done on camera for it in HD close-up. It's Mm. always been in the shadows,
1: so... A huge part of it's just that. Or with underwear. <laughs> I want to talk about the booing. Does the booing make much of an uh, entrance in your book or an appearance? Not
0: really. O- only in that I thought it was the most overblown part of the whole story. Like every freaking news report for about three months was just some people booed and we're like, yeah, yeah, no
1: shit. They did because that's going to happen. But did you talk to anyone in the Australian camp about it? No, I didn't. I mean, I... They were furious that it wasn't in every single piece. Well, But it was in every single piece. I know. And this... I was like, which pieces have you been reading? The only reason yeah. some of us have stopped writing it is because we literally can't put our fingers on those keys anymore. We've just... Yeah. We've worn them to the ground. B and O no longer work. <laughs>
0: Yeah, we can't write about Bang & Olufsen stereo systems or, <laughs> or Boeing airplanes anymore. But like, yeah, I would get emails from editors saying, "Oh, there's nothing about Boeing in this piece. Could you put something about Boeing in it?" And I'd be like, "No, I've put something about Boeing in the last seven pieces that you've asked me to write. Like, I'm not going to do it. It wasn't very interesting, and it wasn't even a majority of the crowd after the first test at Edgebaston. It was. It was. It was substantial." But everything after that, the the thing of people booing Smith when he came off injured at Lord's, that was about six people, I reckon. Like, I was at the ground and I couldn't hear it. I couldn't hear anybody doing it. The, the TV camera mics picked up a few people down towards the pavilion end, but it was yeah. pretty limited compared to everybody else who wasn't.
1: The other thing is that I wondered how that booing at Edgebaston sort of played into the whole redemption thing. Though totally. It was literally man against the world, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. It was, and and it set up that
0: situation in which that has been historically where Smith has excelled is when he's really up against it, when it is all on him. And it is. They're eight for 120. It's the first day. If they get smashed on day one and lose the first test, they're not going to come back and compete in the series. He's been out for 16 months. He's got this tidal wave of sound coming over the fence at him. And it's just all on him, and that's his meteor, you know, and and I think for those reasons, that was better than any other hundred I've seen him make. There have been important ones and hard fought ones, but that one was extraordinary.
1: At the end of all this, and how many words, How many words in your book? I think I wrote a hundred thousand and then cut about twenty five thousand out, so seventy five eighty. <laughs> At the end of all that hard work, do you feel that? basically what you learn is that human beings are slightly more complicated than they're sometimes shown and that professional athletes who are really good can continue to be really good even after big problems in the middle of their careers. <laughs> yeah. I definitely learned that
0: being good at sport does not necessarily stop you from being good at sport in the future, <laughs> even if you have to stop playing sport for a little while. But I suppose I also learned a bit more patience for why people respond to certain tropes or certain ideas well or why they have a fondness for certain ideas because there are reasons that those ideas have appeal and, and so that's a fair bit of what i've tried to go into and, and hopefully i can try to explain that a bit in the book as it goes through thank you very much for coming on it's a pleasure
1: Thank you for listening. Links to Jeff's book will be in the show notes. Please review this show on Apple Podcasts or on any podcasting platform you have access to. This show is made possible by the people who support us on Patreon. So thank you all to those who do. If you want to hear more Red Inker episodes and you have available funds, please help us out on Patreon, which you can find the link also in the show notes. Red Inker is made by me, Jared Kimber. Nick McCorriston is the producer. He looks after your ears. And the theme tune is called The Prisoners by the Red Crickets. If you're liking this podcast, then perhaps you'll like our other show, Double Century. It's my podcast on the history of cricket, where I take you through the stories that made our game. Season 1 included 11 topics like the evolution of batting, reverse swing, and that first crazy test. But Season 2 is dedicated to one topic, race in cricket. For that, we look at the incredible story of Basil D'Oliveira, but also cricket's historically strange relationship with race. We look at what happened to Basil D'Oliveira and also delve into Cricket's historically strange relationship with race. You can find Double Century in all your podcasty streams.